Hi, welcome to the first episode of Financial Planning Explained. And I'm your host, Mike Menninger, certified financial planner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. I'm excited to broadcast this show, which is intended to be educational in nature as I bring in industry experts, corporate executives, and business owners in an attempt to provide you, the viewer, with educational, uh, educational material. Um, in the areas of financial planning, you have six areas of financial planning, and today we're going to be introducing a portion of estate planning, and my guest today, my very first guest, is Brian Adler, who is a partner of Rothkoff Law. Brian, welcome to my show, and welcome to being my first guest. I'm excited. Good. As that was a I. good intro. Well, well I done. Tried. Thank you very much. You're I very appreciate welcome. it. I appreciate so tell it. me a little bit about yourself and your law firm. Of course. So uh, again, I'm Brian Adler. I'm a board certified elder law attorney. Um, and Rothkoff Law Group is an elder care law firm. Mm -hmm. So we work with families to develop their estate plans, to develop a long-term care plan if they're concerned about losing their assets or protecting themselves in the event they need a nursing home or assisted living. And we work with families to advocate for good care. Good. We good, have offices good. in Jersey and PA, and we work with those families to ideally be their advocates, have a relationship with them so they have a trusted advisor. Well, that's very important. And you and I had spoken a while back, and, and it's an area of estate planning that is becoming more and more important as people are living longer. And with people living longer, the need for nursing homes and assisted living is becoming more of an issue. Mm -hmm. And people are very concerned. In fact, um, studies have shown that elder people are more concerned about running out of money than they are dying. And that's where the long-term care facilities that's and right. everything comes into play. I'm fascinated by what you do. Tell me more about the elder life planning. So that's, you touched on a lot of good things there, Mike. The, the reality is we have gotten really good at keeping people alive. We, as a medical community, we've can make people live longer and longer and longer, but we have made, not made a dent in dementia. We haven't made a dent in Alzheimer's. Right. And the reality is that you can have a dementia diagnosis that could last eight to 20 years. Correct. So we have an aging population that was trained to retire at 65, 66, 67, and they're living 15, 20, 30 years. There are estimates that we're going to add 50 years to lifespan over the next 50 years. Wow. A, there are chances that we're going to have people suffering with dementia and Alzheimer's for 30 or 40 years. Wow. From onset to death. And the reality is they're going to run out of money. Care is expensive. And having the resources in place to protect yourself, not just financially, is critical. Everybody worries about death. They worry, well, where's my stuff go when I, where am I going to get my stuff right. when I die? I need a will. Of course. What happens when you get sick? More important is the life documents, not the death documents, like the powers of attorney. Mm -hmm. And having that conversation with your family and those surrogate decision makers in the event you are struck by a dementia diagnosis or Alzheimer's or anything, a physical ailment, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis or stroke. There's a lot of things, and, and that is always the thing that concerns me, is I would rather be taken out immediately oh, as yeah. opposed to a stroke and, and having some type of disabling illness or something that keeps me going for a long time. And and my understanding, too, is it's not just paying for the care of the individual who needs to have the, the, the care, but what about the spouse? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you're looking at, so you really have three, four options when it comes to care. And I don't mean choices for, of care providers, but you can get care in your home. Mm -hmm. You can get care in assisted living, a memory care community, care in a nursing home, or in a loved one's home. You, right. know, you can move in with an adult child, for example. The reality is, though... 
you know, you're going to spend anywhere from five to $15,000 a month. I'm seeing that. And it's, it, that's insane. I mean, I, I don't know how many people can swing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in care, but it's not many. And the reality is there's only one way to pay for it. Money in the bank. That's right. Maybe if you're fortunate, you have long-term care insurance. Or if you're fortunate, you've got wealthy family. But that's the exception to the rule. Well, $10,000 a month, if someone's going to live for 20 to 30 years, I don't have to do the math. That's defined as a lot of money. And you're, probably, you're the expert on this. What's the average net worth of a household? Probably not 2 or $3 million. Certainly not. Certainly so not. you've got these, these uh, competing issues. You have to get a loved one good care and you have a healthy spouse. And good care isn't just about providing care supports for that ailing spouse. You've got to financially preserve resources for the community spouse, the healthy, the wife, the of husband. Because then they're going to be in bad shape. Of course. It's the, these competing values. And then on top of that, you have this layer of a broken system. You know, I'm sure everybody, unless you live on Mars in a cave with your eyes closed and your fingers in your ears, know about COVID and what, how it ran like a buzzsaw through long-term care facilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been a concern. It's a huge problem. So we're looking at these issues now. We're thinking, well, we have to rethink the entirety of our long-term care system. You know, there's, there are models coming out of the Netherlands, models coming out of even the United States that are more dignified, more open, freer care options. But the reality is it doesn't affect the cost. It's still very expensive. You still need people. It is. And I just don't understand how all of these costs can be borne by the individuals and then it falls onto the Medicaid system. That's right. And, you know, that is what I find to be a misnomer. People think, okay, I'll just go on to Medicaid. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And the thing is, too, is that the Medicaid care, my understanding, at least what I hear, mm -hmm. is just not the same level of care. So that's actually a common misconception. I would say, so we, as, as you know, we have offices in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Right. And I primarily practice out of our Pennsylvania offices, my partner in Jersey. The overwhelming majority of nursing homes accept Medicaid. Oh, really? It's the exception that they don't. Mostly um, the, the ones that are attached to continuing care retirement communities are less likely to accept Medicaid, but most nursing homes do. In New Jersey, Medicaid is available in assisted living, but it's, a lot, it's more limited. It's not guaranteed. There's still a required period of private payment. So you can't just walk into an assisted living and say, I want Medicaid. Right. You still have to pay privately for it. Um, and they can still turn you down if certain requirements are met. Such as what? So the beds in a nursing home, I'm sorry, in assisted living, if an assisted living was built after a certain date, they have to allot 10% of their beds to, a to Medicaid recipients. Oh, really? But after they have that 10%, they're under no legal obligation to make a Medicaid bed available, even if you have privately paid. Because look, they're a business too. Of course. And Medicaid pays this much when it costs this much, so private pay is this much. Right. You know, there, there's, a, there's a subsidy So the here. private pay is actually subsidizing Correct. some of the Medicare. So now, what happens if I am in a facility that 10% of the beds, let's say there's 100 beds, 10% mm -hmm. is 10, mm -hmm. and I run out of money, Am I left on the street? What happens now? So they, can, they have to discharge you with a, a safe care plan. And at our office, we have geriatric social workers that mm -hmm. we call elder care coordinators. Mm -hmm. They work with our families to advocate for care. Okay. While I'm figuring out how to pay for it without going broke. I'm making sure they're legally protected, their assets are protected, and our care team is making sure that our clients are advocated for. So we would advocate. We'd get in with the facility. We would start saying, listen, we're running low on funds. Can you work with us on the Medicaid side? What can we do to make sure that this resident can stay in their new home? That they might have been a resident of for a year, two years, three years, ten years. Well, usually, 
if I would hope that they see this coming. For instance, if I'm going to be running out of money mm -hmm. in a year or two years or even three years, I'm going to know now yep. that I've got a finite amount of time. Right. So you work with the families to help them develop that plan Absolutely. well in advance. So it's funny you mention that because I sat with a family just yesterday um, and their mom is in a non-Medicaid nursing home in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and they want her to stay there. And I said, that's fine, because fortunately mom has some significant resources. Mm -hmm. I said, that's no problem. But we're looking at the, the reality of the situation. And mom has um, sufficient resources for what I estimate two and a half to three years. Okay, that's not, that's not a long time. Not a long people, time. Right, okay. And, and there's other expenses there. You know, it's a moving target. Care costs go up. Insurance costs can go up. You never really know what the reality is. You can only estimate. So I said, we have really two options here. We can stay at this facility and spend down and then transition to a community that accepts Medicaid. Or we can transition now. And that way you don't have to worry about transition in two or three years. But even if we stay at the private pay community, I will still recommend that we move when mom has... Fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars left because that opens doors. You know, it's a lot easier to knock on the door to a nursing home and say we've got private dollars than to say, oh, we've got nothing left. We're going to apply for Medicaid. Right, right, right. Because right. there's no payer source, and Medicaid's not an easy benefit to to become eligible for. It's not even an easy benefit to access. So the facilities will be worried you're not going to get approved. Right, and then they're they're stuck holding the bag. That's true. Well, my understanding too, just in talking with clients, is that. People who aren't elderly yet always say, I don't ever want to go into a nursing home. There's such a misnomer with that. Mm -hmm. I don't know about if it's a misnomer, but people don't want to leave their home. The thought of going to a nursing mm -hmm. home is that they're going to be left off and never seen by their family again. I hear it all the time. I'm never going to a nursing home, but there's a, all the beds are filled. Yeah. No sure. one wakes up in the morning and says, I want to go. Actually, that's not true. I had one client who loved it. He insisted on staying, even though he could have transitioned to assisted living. He loved the care that was provided. Really? He loved the people. He, lo he was being waited on. He loved it. <laughs> but the vast majority of people are saying, I don't want to go to a nursing home, but those beds are filled. So the reality is circumstances dictate. And if you don't want to go to a nursing home, if you don't want to go to assisted living, if you intend to stay in your home, plan for that. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of the families we work with looking at nursing home care, it's a crisis. It is, my mom's had dementia for five years, and she wandered out of the house and was hit by a car. Wow. This, is not an this is an example. This happened. Right. I'm sure it does. My mom has arthritis. She was going up the steps. She fell down. She broke her hip. Now she needs a nursing home because she's deteriorated so significantly. Right. You plan early. The broken hip example, that's a chairlift. That's a few thousand dollar change to the house right. that could have kept mom at home. Right. The dementia concern, there are interventions you can put in place with our care coordinators that will keep your loved one in a less restrictive environment if you plan ahead of time. It's like anything else. Still at home. That's right. Yeah. It's just like in your, with your clients. You can't retire at 65 with no money in the bank and say, I'm going to start saving for retirement now. Of course. You can't plan for long-term care when you need it. Oh, You've I got know. to plan well ahead of time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I found, and, and I've found this with a lot of different clients, that they're, they're put into the nursing home by the children oh, who yeah. care for their parent. That's right. But they can't care for the parent mm -hmm. in the way that they need it. And what I've found in many cases is they leave home, go into the nursing home or assisted living, and it revives them. Oh, yeah. 
because you're getting the right supports. So th that's, a, that's a great point, Mike. I'm glad you brought that up. There always is reluctance. Um, I'm thinking about a family that I met with on Wednesday, and dad's at home. He has uh, mostly physical infirmity, and he's deteriorating. Physical what, I'm sorry? Physical infirmity. Okay. He's, he's physically ailing, but he's not, no dementia, right. no cognitive impairment, and he just says, I really want to stay home. Mm -hmm. um, but we're seeing him fail. Right. And they have some home care, and the home care can be valuable, but there's not a lot of socialization. You know, his family comes in and out as they can, but a lot of times in a situation like that, if he transitioned to an assisted living facility, he'd have access to other people his age, mm -hmm. other veterans, which he is. Right. They can talk about things. They can socialize. He's getting probably better access to activities and stimulation. And we do see that improvement. I've seen that. And then not only that, but they're getting three square meals a day. Yep. As opposed to at home, they're not really doing much to help themselves out. And it's for... a crisis in waiting. Okay. It really ultimately is a crisis in waiting. So it's, it all comes down to that planning. It doesn't matter to me if you want to stay home or go to assisted living. It doesn't matter to me if you have dementia or Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis. It, the disease does not matter. What your needs are is what matters to me. Right. You know, I'm not a physician, so it, I don't, I'm not prescribing drugs. I'm saying, okay, you have these issues. This is how we're going to resolve them socially, financially, and legally. And then it's up to the physicians to actually do the medication and the, the course of treatment. Well, good. What, I want to spin off a little bit. One of the things that happens when... Um, people are going into a facility, mm -hmm. whether they're individuals or spouses. Mm -hmm. Can you touch upon uh, medical powers of attorney sure. and durable powers of attorney? Yeah. Because somebody's got to be an advocate in addition to the attorney. That's right. We need family advocates. And we need somebody to have the authority to make the decisions. Right, exactly. So really there's Tell two us. concepts there. You have financial decision-making and healthcare decision-making. Right. So the financial decision making, that's easy. That's the, not easy to do, but it's easy to explain. Right, right, right. It's accessing bank accounts, transferring funds, going to retirement accounts, getting funds accessible to pay for care, to pay for what mom or dad needs. And it could be a spouse that serves as the agent who's the decision maker, could be adult child, could be a professional. I serve as agent under power of attorney for a number of my clients really? who are unsupported elders. Okay. They don't have any family. Right, they don't right, have anybody right. to okay, help that makes them. sense. And then you have the healthcare power of attorney, which really serves two functions. It is that healthcare decision making, but it's also your end of life declaration. So if you're unconscious and you're in a persistently vegetative state, you want to have those decisions already made. Right. Because of you course. can't make them yourself. Because you can't make them anymore. So you talk Correct. to your family, you put it in writing, you have someone to advocate for you. Those are so important because there's only so much I can do. I have no legal authority for my clients without somebody giving it to me. Of course. And if you have dementia, Alzheimer's, if you're unconscious, you can't give it to me. Only the agent under power of attorney can. Right. And in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey, there is no mechanism, no mechanism in the law to access the funds of another person without a power of attorney. And that's important to understand. Imagine dad is single and he's got a house and a retirement account and 50 grand in the bank and he needs assisted living or memory care and you have no power of attorney. The common response I get is, but I'm his kid, or I'm his spouse. I just go to, I'm just gonna write a check. You can't you do can't, that. You can't, even as a spouse? No, there's no mechanism, unless she's a joint owner. Okay, understood. Or he had already put her on the account as power of attorney, then you could. But if it's just in his name, without that document, there's nothing you can do unless you go to court and have a court-appointed surrogate decision maker. 
Wow. And I know. And that's time consuming, I'm sure. It's time consuming, it's expensive. And do you really want the court choosing your decision maker or do you want to beat yourself? Of course. So you choose of yourself. Of course. So, question for you. Yeah. Um, this has been asked of me. Is it, give me your opinion on if there are two or three children, mm -hmm. is it better or worse to have? multiple powers of attorney for both sure. medical and durable. So I love the idea of having co-agents. Okay. Um, there is no legal requirement that you have only one or two or three or there's too many. There's no such thing as too many under right. the law. I have had trouble with financial institutions when they see more than two. I've had, I had one family that had three and another that had four and the bank just said it's too many hands in the pot. So Why? we won't any accept one it. of the four or Correct. is it so in other words it's it's or 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 as opposed to and. that's what I recommend to my families uh, that I work with it doesn't have it can be that they have to act jointly I would suggest you let them act independently if you trust them to all, all their judgment because the benefit of a co-agent is kids live all over the place right of course if you have one here you want them to be able to work while the other one is traveling and vice versa uh, but you can certainly require them to act jointly I, again I don't advise it but we would have that discussion. And one point I want to touch on is a power of attorney, in my opinion, should be immediately effective. You can create a financial power of attorney that is standby, which means it doesn't go into effect until you are certified as incapacitated. Okay. That's a hurdle. And it can be a significant hurdle if you're dealing with a cognitive impairment, for example. Where on that scale is incapacity? I prefer and I advise my clients execute immediately effective. Interesting. So That's the, counter to what I would have otherwise thought. And, the, and it's counter to what a lot of my clients say. I discuss both. And I explain to them that the reason for immediately effective, you're, A, you're going to put it in a drawer. It doesn't mean your kids are going to go out and access your funds right away. Right. You, you got to obviously trust them. Correct. Right. And that's the question. If somebody says to me, well, why would I give my son all of these authorities today? Why wouldn't you? What if he goes and steals all my money? Well, okay. What's going to stop him when you're incapacitated from stealing all of your money? The question isn't, why would I give this power to my son today? The question is, do you trust the person you're appointing as your agent? Right, because it doesn't it, matter. It's it a very matter. good point. That's, That's the thought point. process. Don't put hurdles between your agent and their ability to advocate for you. Choose the right agent. Have you ever come across situations where you have two children named as either the medical or the durable power of attorney who disagree? Yeah. And especially, let's say, the medical power of attorney. Yeah, that happens. And um, so what do you... what? do you do? What do they do? What, what do you do? First step, I have a conversation with the family. I say, what, what is going on here? And I see if I can't resolve the dispute. Because it could be that I had a conversation with mom and dad that could inform upon their decision. Right. Okay. You know, let's say it's an end of life decision. Right. And they're disagreeing over artificial nutrition and hydration. I could refer back to my notes and say, I had a conversation with mom and dad, and they specifically said to me they didn't want artificial nutrition or hydration. Does that help? Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, we might refer them to family mediation, you know, where we bring in a professional mediator really? to try. I've oh, never yeah, heard that. Okay. We do that with some frequency when there's family disputes. And then finally, if it can't be resolved, sometimes it winds up in the orphan's court or the surrogate's court with a judge appointing a guardian. Um, and the judge will work with the guardian to make the final decision. Yeah, but that's never good. Last resort. Yeah. And I can tell you maybe twice in my career have had anything escalate to that point when there's a disagreement over mom and dad's care. Is, Finances is, are different. Is the spouse typically named as the primary 
And then the children are the subsequent in the event that the yeah. spouse chooses not to? Or I would say that that's normal? typical. It, typically, okay. and it's very important we say typical, not yeah, normal, because no anything's right. normal. But typically, I would see if there's a healthy spouse, it would be the spouse, then the kids, or right. maybe the spouse and a kid. Right. Because again, I'm an elder care attorney. Right. My clients aren't in their 40s and 50s. Some are, but the vast majority of the families we're working with are elderly. So if you're appointing a spouse, as we were talking about um, in the lobby this morning, we had a husband who passed away suddenly before his much more medically compromised wife. And he was in good mental and Great physical mental health. Great physical health. He was had just retired. We still, then autopsy is being performed. We don't know what's going, what happened, wow. but he, di he died suddenly. And that's a real concern. So was there a subsequent power of attorney? There was a co-agent. Oh. So he named his- Thankfully. He named his wife's daughter as the co-agent. So we had someone who can just step right in. Okay, good. And they were already on there, so we don't have to go through all the rigmarole again. That's a big help. Yeah. That's a big help. But you know, these are the things that, that we don't think about. Mm -hmm. And the viewers, a lot of viewers don't think about that. Is there anything else that you feel that you can add that would, um, that the viewers would benefit from? Yeah, it's, don't be scared. You know, I don't work like, a, I'm not a normal attorney. When I'm you not, say don't be scared, you're talking about the people who feel like they need to go in yeah. or the children? All of it. Don't be fearful. You know, a lot of people here, well, we, you, you talk to an elder law attorney, people stiff, stiffen up because it's a, it's a lawyer. Um, a lot of people here, you need to talk well, it's about- That's because lawyers are mostly stiffs. We are stiffs. <laughs> we are. I mean, look That's at what me, I I'm heard. Like, I, I, we are. <laughs> and also, they're scared about planning. They're scared about talking of end-of-life decisions. You know, everybody's okay with a will because they know they're going to die. Nobody wants to plan for their for illness or incapacity because right. they want to deny it. Right. I'm, I get it. But it, if you don't plan, you're going to have a much worse outcome. And this isn't like calling a travel agent. And if you go to the airport and you get on a plane and you go to the Caribbean, you're probably going to still have a pretty good time, even if a travel agent didn't plan it. Right. If you don't plan for your care, you don't plan for your estate, you don't plan for your surrogate decision making, you're not probably going to have a good time. It's going to be a lot more difficult of for course. you, a lot more well, for your family. One of my mottos: nobody plans to fail; they just fail to plan. That's right. So there's so much to talk about here. It, this is this is great. Now, tell me more about your firm serving as advocates mm -hmm. for uh, nursing home facilities. Sure. My understanding is that you have a very good familiarity with a lot of the assisted living. We do, and so that helps you and your staff to be able to talk through with Correct. your clients what their goals, where they want to be, a lot of times near their children or whatever. So, so when I was a baby elder law attorney, I used to practice what I call traditional elder law. You've been doing this since you were a baby? Since that's I was a baby. Wow, that's impressive. You should have seen me in diapers. Wow. It was I'm embarrassing when I had to get changed in a client consult, but still, oh, you know, these things Yeah, I would happen. imagine. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> but you got through that. I got through it. That's good. So I was a traditional elder law attorney, which is mostly asset focused. It's protect assets, get on Medicaid. So families would come to me and say, well, my mom needs assisted living, or my mom has you know, plenty of money, or my mom needs home care, and I'd say, well, I can't help you. I can, I can protect assets to get you on Medicaid. And that's a big part of our practice still, as we already talked about. Yeah, but, and that's what I used to always think of yeah. elder law, is how do I protect the assets yep. so I can go to Medicaid and make the government pay? But what's more important? I'm not worried about saving money for the kids. I'm worried about getting mom and dad care. Of course. So you've got those two, two avenues legal and financial. That's a two-legged stool, it's gonna fall over. The critical component is get the best care possible. Yes. So rather than just focusing on assets and the legal side, we also bring in, as I mentioned, our elder care coordinators. Because families come to us, they might never need Medicaid. 
they might have a great long-term care insurance policy or plenty of money or mm -hmm. families willing to pay for the, whatever the bills are, but they need advocacy. They need a health care and a long-term care advocate. They need a resource. And that's where our elder care coordination team comes in. I'll sit there and help them with advising them on how to act as a power of attorney. Maybe I'll sit with their financial advisor and say, listen, these are our costs. Is there a way that you can change their investment makeup to increase their income, right. to make them safer? But ultimately, they're looking for that care advocacy because it's a broken system. It's so fractured. Getting from home to the hospital to rehab to short to long-term rehab to a nursing home, assisted living and back, it's a difficult thing. It's, it's, the discharge planners are so busy once somebody leaves the hospital, they got to turn around to their next patient. Once somebody comes off rehab at a short-term facility, they got to turn around and face to their next patient. They don't have the resources to continue to follow up. Right, and they we don't know. They're confused. Together. That's right. That's terrific, Brian. Our time is up already. This is great. This was absolutely enjoyable. I really enjoyed. I this. learned Thank so you. much. You're the best first interview I've ever had. Well, I appreciate that. It's like <laughs> the best first date ever. I absolutely. It. Hey, Brian, take a moment if you could. Sure. Look into the camera. Mm -hmm. Tell people how they could reach you, whether it be New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Take it. a moment, look sure. into the camera, and tell us how we can reach you. So again, I'm Brian Adler with Rothkoff Law Group. You can feel free to contact our office at 215-546-5800. Visit us on the web at rothkofflaw.com. That's R-O-T-H-K-O-F-F-L-A-W.com. Or send us an email, info at rothkofflaw.com, with any questions you might have or any resources that we can provide to you. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you again, Absolutely Mike. fantastic. I appreciate this. So here we are again, wrapping up the show. And of the six areas of financial planning, we talked about estate planning. Now, estate planning covers a very, very broad array of topics. Um, but elder law planning is a, a, a very narrow window. So having someone like Brian to be able to guide us through that process, most estate planners that we deal with help with guiding for the wills. And I'm not saying that's not important. Brian also does that. But the whole concept of elder law care is very, very important. And we're finding this more and more. As Brian indicated, people are living a whole lot longer. And it's projected 20 years from now, we're talking people are going to be living for decades. How do we handle not just the financial aspect of it, but how do we also handle the, the care? And the care is very important. And that's where we need the advocate. You know, working with folks like us, yes, we're the financial planners, but fact of the matter is, is we use folks like Brian to be able to guide in areas that we're not experts in. We want them to be able to work with the client to help them identify which facilities are good facilities, which facilities are best for their type of needs, whether it be cognitive, uh, physical, or uh, memory care. There's a lot of different things. I learn more every day. I learn from folks like Brian. So I hope that everyone today has learned something as far as elder law planning as a subset of estate planning. Uh, we will have many more episodes on various components of estate planning. Uh, I also intend to have an episode sometime in the near future to provide just an overview to estate planning. My guest for next week's show is going to be Adam Peltzman, who's going to be talking about health insurance, which is very timely this time of year because people are having to go through open enrollment and applying for next year's Medicare, and he'll be able to share. So thank you very much for joining. My name again is Mike Menninger, host of Financial Planning Explained, and I look forward to seeing you next week.